Today on Maker's Cast, I chat with Nick Calandra, the editor-in-chief of The Escapist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Maker's Cast, my excuse to talk to interesting people in the name of marketing. I'm Matt, and I'm joined today by Nick Calandra. Hello. Hello, Nick. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming me. on. Thanks for having yeah. me on. <laughs> As I briefly mentioned in the intro, uh, Mr. Calandra is the editor-in-chief of The Escapist as well as the director of Gamumentary. Is that correct? Yep. Cool. Well, for anyone uh, listening who may not be familiar, familiar with those, could you uh, introduce those briefly? Sure. Uh, so I guess I'll start with Gamumentary because that's the, the simpler one. Uh, Gamumentary is a uh, video game documentary, uh, I guess not really company anymore, but brand that I started up back in uh, twenty. 17 and uh we saw what daniel dry was doing on GameSpot. basically i got some inspiration when he had gone to uh poland to cover the witcher and he did like this little video segment out in the wild kind of area showing off you know just kind of poland in general before getting into like a docu-series style thing i had been covering video games since uh i was a freshman in high school all the way back in 2009 so i was actually finishing up college at the time and I'd kind of gotten tired of uh, sitting in my bedroom or, you know, office or whatever, covering games and decided, you know, that looks fun. I want to go do that. So I got, got together with some friends and uh, reached out to some game companies that I knew and ended up doing a documentary through Unit Games. And that's kind of how that all got started. And then uh, by the time uh, we were done with that, we decided that we wanted to run a Kickstarter. So we ran a Kickstarter, successfully funded that. And then Enthusiast Gaming, which is the parent company of The Escapist, who I had known for a long time, previously purchased my original site, only SP or only single player, uh, in 2016 before I started Game Mentory. And then after we finished the Kickstarter for Game Mentory, uh, I sold them Game Mentory as well. And then about six months after that, things had kind of gotten wiry at the Escapist with the uh, the former editor, and they asked me to come on and be the managing editor of video, and then, then the editor-in-chief two months later. All right. I definitely have lots of questions about uh, all of those things. <laughs> sure. But uh, if we could start actually back with games coverage in college, because that was my question of where the trajectory began. Was that it uh, in uh, just part-time in college? Uh, well, I was actually covering games as a freshman all the way back in high school. Uh, oh, wow. So, you know, I kind of grew up with video games. My, my dad had me on a computer oh, by the time I was like four years old. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was in high school, I... I was uh, a little bit too addicted to video games, but it quite too often <laughs> kind of affected schoolwork and all that, and up to the point like my parents even like made me sell my Xbox at one point. Um, it do be like that sometimes. Yeah, so <laughs> I, uh, you know, young high school kid with no money, and I was like, well, I, you know, like maybe I can write about games and get them for free. So I had my dad buy me a domain name and then started writing about games. That's kind of where all that kind of stemmed from, and went to college to get a business degree originally and then kind of just found myself very bored doing that uh, so i ended up switching majors about halfway through until multimedia journalism and that's nice. kind of where i found my stride and got into some video editing classes and all that and that's kind of where i found the, the drive to end up actually going to do the documentary stuff that's where i found enjoyed that more than writing as much as uh i didn't i didn't want writing to go away because that was kind of the point in time when uh video was really taking over everything mm. right like everybody wanted to switch to video and a lot of us were kind of holding out like no the written website has to be around it has to be a thing it has to stay so at what point does only single player factor into that timeline uh so i 
started, my first site was Titan Reviews in 2009, and then we did Velocity Gamer, and then Only SP started up in 2012, and that was actually con uh, conceptualized during a hockey tournament that was on, and kind of just Googling around, I was like, hmm, is there a site for single-player games? No? Okay, mm -hmm. I guess we're starting one. <laughs> uh, so that, that site took up a lot of my time. It was, it was a constant, I mean, we started it from literally nothing, you know, no funding or anything, just volunteer only. I'm not, I'm not wasn't even making money off of it so that was uh that was a, that was a huge time sink for me i mean we were, i was pretty much going to class coming home covering news and then once college started same routine waking up early in the morning like four or five starting to cover news go to class come back cover news uh so by the time 2016 rolled around google kind of took a big hit on the sp and we, we lost the, most of our traffic by then and i kind of decided to throw in the towel and uh, I didn't want the brand to die off. I thought it was too valuable. So thankfully, Enthusiast Gaming stepped in and purchased it from me at the time. Hmm. So was that a situation in which it was shopped or they reached out to you? Uh, I, I like in a last-ditch effort to keep it alive, reached out to them. I had known them for a while before they were really an even Enthusiast Gaming. The now president of Enthusiast Gaming started up a blog called the Nintendo Enthusiast. And he had reached out to me on a forum that's no longer active called games press and it was like hey would you like to make some more money you know we're trying to start up an admin ad network so like, yeah sure so that's kind of where our whole relationship started <laughs> with that once enthusiast gaming started kind of coming into its own uh, that only sp was actually the first site they ever acquired interesting so was it a straight transition out of only sp into okay well i'm moving on from that no clip is cool i want to emulate that in some way so game mentory um no, it, there was a little bit of a, a space in between. Uh, I dabbled with going into games PR and marketing. I, it's kind of like you know everybody goes through it in college where you don't really know what you want to do. <laughs> Once you start getting closer to graduation, you start freaking out if you don't have a job lined up. And you're like, oh shit, you know, where am I going? So I actually interned for somebody to do games PR for a couple of months, and then that kind of fell through. And, and then that's kind of where the, the documentary stuff came in. And I and at the time, I had thought my my time with games journalism was done. Uh, mm. It can be, it can be very disheartening to be a small site owner, especially you know just how hard it is to drive traffic. And if you're, you know, we were doing all this cool stuff, but it just never really gained traction. And, you know, sometimes it, it just comes down literally to being in the good graces of Google. And if you don't have yeah. that, you know, we don't have the money to pay for a web developer to make sure our site's optimized and all that. It's just kind of the odds stacked against you, especially when you're still in school trying to finish a degree too. Indeed. So moving into gamingmentary, I think on um, an episode of The Escapist Show, you mentioned that you just kind of took a swath of time to travel to a bunch of places. Was that correct? Uh, yeah. So while we uh, ran the, we were running, <laughs> I planned and ran the Kickstarter during my senior year of college. <laughs> it was actually my last semester. And like, that was the, that was the uh, time I was like, all right, we're going to do this. I'm going to take this shot. Uh, if this doesn't work, then I'm going to find a job doing something else. So we, we kind of put it all, everything we had into the Kickstarter. Not really, we didn't really invest any money into it. Like the only money we invested was uh, going to shoot the Runic Games dock. And that wasn't, you know, crazy expensive or anything. Just buy a plane ticket, find a place to stay and rent some gear and we're good to go. I kind of, a little bit more personal, like personally, I, I fell into a pretty, pretty dark depression uh, during that time too, right before the Kickstarter and all that. So that was kind of my, my jump into getting back into things and, and getting my life kind of going 
in the correct way again. Yeah, senior year will do that to you. Yeah, well, it wasn't even it wasn't even that. There was there was some personal stuff in my life that had happened at that time, and uh, yeah, just kind of the the whole Kickstarter and getting back into the documentaries kind of gave me purpose again. Yeah, especially when you had sort of uh, I imagine when you had resigned yourself to okay, I guess games journalism though a passionate thing is not working out i'll figure something else out that certainly doesn't help that situation yeah Uh, yeah it was kind of felt like i was giving up my dream Mm -hmm. the kickstarter was kind of really really realized that like the last last ditch effort to like make this happen and obviously it worked to some degree yeah can't say uh too too shabby with how things have turned out so far honestly kickstarter terrifies me it's yeah yeah i mean we oh man we spent i spent like three or four months just planning that thing before we launched it you know i don't i don't come from like the mainstream websites or anything so like we never really had an audience to build from off the bat you know we had some fans on only sp but it wasn't anything that was like you know they didn't really follow me they followed the brand kind of thing uh which was which was something i, I really learned during the kickstarter is like you know i need to work on my own personal brand a little bit because people want to follow me and not the brand so yeah run, running a kickstarter is terrifying though because like if you do any research on it they'll tell you like the first 48 hours is where you make the most of your money and then it goes into a lull and then the last 48 hours is when you're going to get that last boost <laughs> so some people will throw in the towel after, you know if you basically if you don't make a good i think like i think the thing was like 45 percent of your money in the first 48 hours you should probably throw in the towel mm. so it's a that was a uh yeah i didn't sleep didn't sleep that whole month i bet was there any, you've mentioned in uh, things since where, you know, gaming mentory has been functional for quite a while now that you've been uh, in contact with Mr. O'Dwyer over at Noclip. Uh, did you reach out for any advice or anything going into the, the Kickstarter or did that come after gaming mentory was established? Um, that mostly came after. We, we didn't really reach out to him for advice before, aside from like, hey, can you shout this out? Like, you know, we're doing this. I, I love what you do. and Hopefully, you know, we can mm. do more of it. You know, he he was running a Patreon, and he came from GameSpot, so you know he had that huge advantage of having an audience already established through the things that he did on GameSpot. So yeah, we did, we didn't really talk to him until after, and, and even then, it wasn't really there wasn't really that much collaboration. So it was like, oh hey, you know, we're we're looking at doing this story. Have you already reached out or anything? No. Okay, well, we're gonna go do it then, <laughs> or try mm-hmm. to do it. But he supported our Kickstarter and Patreon. So oh wow, yeah, it definitely seems like. Uh, the industry is rife with stories to be told in that format to where there is no need to compete. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's for viewership, not really. Um, you know, there's money to, there's money to compete for, obviously. Oh, sure. Uh, and and the stories is, an, is another thing. But, you know, I, I think we've we've both carved our own our own niches with the documentaries. I think our our story is a bit more not so into like deep dive development stuff and more like base level. Like, here's the story of how this happened and his his get very deep into the design, you know, the human element of how people are designing these things. True. I thought of a question and I left my brain. Welcome to the job of being an interviewer. <laughs> Man, you're telling me. I've been doing this for like a year and it happens every episode. Try uh, try doing a documentary and doing eight, eight straight hours of interviews. Man, I bet. So, uh, I thought of it. Haha. So, uh, what about the sort of documentary style of storytelling and interviewing drew you away from the writing style of news coverage really just comes down to that human connection and uh, getting to travel and actually go out and see the world and see the things that you're talking about or writing about i guess it's just it's a wholly different experiment experience like it's one thing to interview somebody over skype or discord and even over a video chat but actually traveling and seeing where people are working out of so 
you know, a lot of our documentaries have been international. I had never been to Europe before we, we funded the Kickstarter. So, and now that, now that we funded that, I, within the past two years, I went to, uh, Prague, Ghent, Amsterdam. No, it's a really infectious kind of idea because goodness knows uh, when I started Music City Makers, you know, this little outlet for my creative stuff, including this podcast, it was born out of a time of more or less a breakdown that kept me home for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point I said, okay, I can't go get a job job yet, but I need to do something. And I had been absorbing so many things like Noclip and like uh, uh, other sort of travel-y shows uh, on YouTube to where I said, okay, I need to find a, a way to connect with other people at all and particularly have, you know, these bigger conversations about things that I didn't even get to have with coworkers because you're just working right. when you're in an office or in retail. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I definitely feel that, especially living out of the Midwest. Like, we're not even, I'm not even in the tech bubble. So, like, I don't have a connection of, like, colleagues that I, I meet ever, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it seems like, uh, at least based on the video output, basically all of the escapists already worked remotely before this happened, right? Yeah, we all work remote. Hmm. No, no central office yet. <laughs> so, uh, I guess transitioning into that. So, Enthusiast Gaming picked up Gabymentary. Uh, was that a re- reach out to them thing or was that a this would take something off of me if you handled that part of it kind of thing? Um, that was partially a both ways thing. Um, sure. By the time the Kickstarter was done and everything, I, I had graduated college and you know I was ready for full-time work. And for them, I, I do a lot more than just you know creating content. You know, I'm, I'm very business savvy with this kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, as I'm sure you've seen with the escapists and how much things have changed. Like that's 99% of that's been me over the past year putting things together, all the premium stuff, all the all the merch, everything uh, has been me behind the scenes. So, And they have a bunch of acquired sites now and everything, so I kind of help out on, on that end too. So it's more my official position as editor-in-chief of The Escapist, but I also do 100 million other things with them, <laughs> <laughs> including now that, you know, putting on a showcase. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, definitely want to talk about that later. But that was definitely one of my big questions coming into this. And one of the reasons I reached out in the first place is because I don't think I understand, and I don't know that anyone outside of the industry would, what editor-in-chief of an online magazine with video channels and live streams, what that entails. It feels like it's somewhere in between like what we would consider a, a traditional like newsroom editor and like a film producer or something. Uh, yeah, I would say compared to my colleagues who are editor in chiefs, I probably do <laughs> quite a bit more hands-on <laughs> than I would say a lot more. A lot of them do. You know, I, I wouldn't even say like I'm really a uh, what people would normally think of as an editor in chief because I have my hands in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, like for me, my my daily routine is scheduling content, coming up with ideas for content, producing, directing just the whole the whole gambit of things it's a lot of it's a lot of it's scheduling and planning and then and then staring at analytics numbers all days and figuring out you know understanding (laughs) where our traffic's coming from and how do we capitalize on that so coming into uh the escapist as at that point the managing video editor was was that a a thing of you saw okay there's a need here to find a a new direction a new image or that was the job you were given? No, at the time, that was the job I was given. Um, Enthusiast Gaming kind of put me in there because they wanted to expand uh, Escapist Videos programming again. And 
Uh, there was a whole previous team in charge at that point. So my first like official project with The Escapist was really getting our video stuff going at E3 that year. And after they saw that, kind of saw the direction I was taking with it, that's kind of really, you know, said, all right, so this makes sense to make you in charge of the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> not not including, like, just without getting too far into it, it was just, of course, lots of extra drama going on behind the scenes, out in public, too, uh, with the former yeah. editor. My whole project and has been basically distancing the escapists from, you know, the things that came in the past, like Gamergate and everything like that. Trying to Indeed. trying to move us in a in a positive direction and, and something that's just completely separate from that. Even though we share the same brand name, it's you know a completely new outlet aside from continuous zero punctuation, the big picture, and all that stuff. Yeah, and I think there's definitely uh, a measure of success that's been had there from a viewer standpoint, like me, in terms of it doesn't feel as though the brand has been totally abandoned because uh, there there is this perception, particularly of zero punctuation, of it being negativity. But it's really not, and this was highlighted in the gamumentary uh, doc of Yahtzee and Zero Punctuation, it, it is criticism. And there can be honest criticism without being totally bent into negativity. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's criticism with the, the comedy element of it. it. You know, it's not meant to be taken super seriously. Uh, Indeed. You know, Yahtzee's not, not a hateful person or anything like that. You know, he, he actually, <laughs> I think you had, a, I think you had some fun at E3 last year, but yeah, we, with, with, uh, bringing the escapist back, like, or at least my vision of it compared to the former editor before I took over is I didn't want to just relive the past. I wanted to keep the legacy of the site alive and move it forward. So the legacy of the site had all the kind of, you know, the different, brands of content and everything like there was all these different brands under the escapist umbrella uh so i guess mm -hmm. you could say like you know the escapist is like a hosted content provider almost and that's kind of what we've been trying to do is you know bring new brands into the mix and focus on positivity while also retaining that yeah trying to sort of unify it into the escapist being not homogenous but being a place where this feels like this content belongs here instead of just you putting yeah, out and you know a lot of a lot of brands want a single unifying voice and all that. I, I don't really care about that on the escapist. I just want a place that people come to that, you know, hey, I'm coming to the site. There's going to be good content here that I want to read and have in it. It's going to uh, be engaging or, or interesting or insightful or whatever. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that uh, people bring up, especially in games journalism is, I think it was a donkey video where he talked about video game criticism and how if you have a bunch of people under one title under one banner, a, a GameSpot or an IGN, their disparate opinions that come through in disparate reviews or columns can make it feel like there is no consensus, despite the fact that they are all writing for one place, whereas on something like The Escapist, because Yahtzee is zero punctuation, a different person does basically every episode or every few episodes of three-minute review, it's different perspectives filtered through the same banner i suppose yep. yep that's pretty much it like we don't want to be you know an echo chamber for our own thoughts there's a lot of a lot of talk right now but like i guess conservative writers being in games and all that kind of stuff and like I, that doesn't bother me mm. like i you know if we write an article and then somebody wants to pitch something that directly challenges that article i'm more than happy to run something like that sure uh, a good example would be you know guns and video games somebody might be completely pro guns and somebody might be completely anti-gun and i'm fine running both of those yeah, as long as they are well-reasoned, well-researched yep. pieces, there are multiple yep. perspectives. Yeah, so in the uh, sort of launch video for 
uh, Escapist Plus on the YouTube subscriptions, you mentioned that uh, the sort of three pillars of the revamped Escapist are uh, storytelling, critique, and commentary. Yeah, could you, could you expound on sort of how that bears out? Yeah, in the sure. Content? So uh, one of my favorite things to do, and I mean, obviously the documentaries is part of that, but uh, when we originally launched Gaming Venery, part of that was just focusing completely on feature stories with uh, unique pitches that weren't just, you know, here's here's a long story to draw out all the details about such and such games. So the first pillar is, you know, focusing on storytelling through our documentaries and, and other upcoming content that we're, we're working on. You know, that's that's kind of the storytelling aspect of it, even through our, our written content. You know, each pitch should be telling a story um, and not just, you know, in, indulging you in information kind of thing. We always want to have something unique mm. to share. Uh, and then, you know, the critique, you know, zero punctuation, escape to the movies, three-minute reviews, that all that kind of stuff. And then, and then commentaries, like, you know, there are the, uh, the escapist show is kind of delving into that you know, the different types of columns like we run on the site, like uh, Darren Mooney's In the Frame and, and Second Look and Marty Sliva is actually writing for us and has Snapshot and all that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's all very interesting how this is borne out because I, I think I mentioned this in the first uh, email that we exchanged. Uh, I've been watching particularly Zero Punctuation since I was in, like, middle school? So, I don't know, seeing the the escapist name kind of evolve and come into this new space where i'm watching basically every video that comes out now it's been really interesting and i think i think one of the things that jumped out to me i don't know how uh instrumental you were in this happening adding new voices like particularly yourself i enjoy your part of uh the escapist show every week but it's been interesting to see jack packard come in and my, the thought that keeps coming into my brain, having watched Zero Punctuation for a long time, is every time Jack is with him on uh, Slightly Civil War or the streams, I just keep thinking, oh, Yahtzee has a playmate now. Yeah, yeah, Jack Packard actually reached out to us and saw who, saw he, who oh, wow. he was, and I was like, yeah, come aboard. <laughs> uh, a lot of the, all the three-minute reviewers, uh, besides from Amy, who just started, uh, they came from Gaming Mentory, that's where we started the three-minute reviews, and then brought them over to the Escapist. Hmm. Amy actually came from Only SP. So everybody kind of, I kind of know everybody that works on the site where they came from. That was one of my goals as taking over as editor-in-chief was not to just keep bringing on people that are already established and have audiences. I wanted to bring in new voices for people to follow because that's that's how I got started. And then, you know, that's when we were doing Only SP and even gave me a minute to start. Like, we were volunteer only because we didn't make any money to pay anything. We made enough money to probably pay the bills on hosting and a little bit of chunk change for people to, for their work. And the, even the way I got started was like my very first site when I was a freshman in high school, I reached out to uh, three guys on a website called PSX Extreme. I saw in their comments that they seemed to write very well. And I was like, hmm, you guys want to come start a website with me and see how it goes? And they're like, sure. <laughs> and at the time, they didn't even know I was only 13 years old. They were, I think, four or five years older. And I didn't even tell them until like two years later. <laughs> so sure. I was managing, managing these guys, but... You know, I wrote like shit, so they were teaching me how to write the whole time. And, mm-hmm. But I mean, a lot of the people, quite a few people that worked on only this beer, gave me mentory, ended up going up. Like one ended up being full-time at Destructoid at one point. One's a full-time oh, wow. writer at BG24-7. One's a full-time writer at uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun now. So quite a, quite a few people went on to actually go get real jobs in the industry, which is something I'm super proud of, of having a hand in helping. You know, the people that were on Gaming Mentory and doing the three-minute reviews already, being able to bring them over to the Escapist and pay them a fair amount of money for it has been a nice feeling. 
And talk about trying to not be an echo chamber. Like That's the only way to introduce new thoughts into any industry is allowing new voices to enter right. in some way. And I mean, even when uh, the people that are doing three-minute reviews, they started off, they did never done anything like that before. They'd never done video editing like that. Uh, so it's been a it's been a great starting point watching them improve. And, you know, they have Omar who uh, does the documentaries with me. He's, you know, helping helping them become vid- better video editors as they go too. So that, you know, even if we're not paying the best rates across the industry, they're, they're still getting more out of it just by learning and being able to take these experiences elsewhere if they need to. And talking about not necessarily reaching out to people just because they have a known audience and being the guy who looks at all the analytics. Do you feel a sort of push-pull between uh, that idea of new voices, new interesting ideas, and the sort of creator-focused world of YouTube, like the personality focus of things like a Rooster Teeth or a Polygon? Um, yeah, it's a balancing act. Like, you know, we, we brought in Jack Packard because I, I knew he would work pretty well with us, uh, you know, if he did video game content or if he did movie content or, or whatever, you know, he could connect with Bob or Yahtzee. So he, he just made a natural fit. And then the other ones, you know, up until recently, they hadn't done much on camera stuff, but they're, they're starting to get into the streams and building personalities for themselves. So you know, who knows what they'll end up doing. Some of them are even Indeed. pitching their own video series and all that. And once we're out of this mess of a pandemic and the advertising rates come back, you know, maybe they'll get their own stuff to do. Yeah, and obviously, uh, I've voiced my own opinion of enjoying the, the current lineup, but um, you obviously pay a lot of attention to audience feedback and comments. Was there a significant wave of positivity or negativity around the, the revamp? And revamp? Um, well, to be completely honest, that was like one of the scariest things jumping into because with Game oh, Mentory sure. and only SP, I'd only ever managed audience of thousands, and now we're looking at hundreds of thousands and you know, up to a million people. Mm-hmm on youtube so that was relatively terrifying and also like knowing zero punctuations audiences it's it's amazing how devoted they are to him and the series that he's created but it's also terrifying to like say hey we're going to change some things up here uh even though we're not changing zero punctuation and all that like we're going to add new things see what you like what you don't like yeah the kind of people who enjoy yahtzee's opinions have yeah um and they're you know they're they can be pretty rough at times and at the start, it was it was a little bit like that, you know, like nobody nobody had ever com- that's the thing, like nobody had ever communicated with the escapist audience. It's mm. been shocking to see on YouTube specifically that like nobody has any idea of like what happened at the escapist between 2014 and 2018. Like wow. you know, we go into comments and there's still people in there. They're like, I have no idea what happened because there was no communication on that front. So my first goal was to just <laughs> introduce somebody they could communicate with. And, and hear their feedback. I think once they started noticing that I, I was listening and was taking their feedback and acting on it and trying to make the channel work for everybody kind of thing, because you know, changing up the mix, they've only had zero punctuation for how many years? I mean, three years, it's just zero punctuation almost. It's, it's just a balancing act. Uh, you can't come in and just say, hey, we're changing things. You're gonna like it or you're gonna leave kind of thing. And it needs to kind of work mm-hmm. for everybody, even though like in the end, it's up to us what we want to do. But. Yeah, but that, that was terrifying at the start, uh, but it's worked out. Uh, the overall mood of the channel, I, I think, is much more positive than where it was a year ago when I, when I started. <laughs> yeah, that, that's obviously a concern with anything you decide to make and put out into the world is the balance of, am I being satisfied by this as a creator, but the people who are an audience and particularly coming into a pre-existing 
brand, the dedicated audience, are they going to be satisfied by this? Because they, to some degree, it's weird to say deserve because people feeling uh, an ownership over a brand that they do not control can get kind of dicey. But from a practical standpoint, you need to keep your core competency. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, even looking at the reception to us launching Premium, I think if I had launched that a year ago, that would have been roasted over the coals and downvoted it into oblivion. And to see that the reception is, you know, 95% positive on that, that was telling. Excellent. That's good to hear. Well, talking of you know, uh, recent things uh, on the Escapist channel and the new format and everything else, the, the newest documentary just came out, what, two weeks uh, ago? Yeah, a week ago. Darkest yeah. Dungeon Doc? That was actually a really compelling documentary. I Excellent. enjoyed that thoroughly. I, I was uh, really taken with, uh, and obviously this is in part you and in part yep. Omar, right? The cinematography yep. guy? The pacing of it felt really succinct and flowed very well for a feature-length documentary. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just him and I working on those things. So when we go and do those, it's me doing all the interviews, and he does all the shooting, and then he does the editing. So yeah, a big a big part of those is it's kind of the direction we're moving in is, is away from, like I said, we're moving away from traditional journalism and more into creating entertaining content. So we try to make those feel a bit more you know fun i guess is the word for it maybe more movie like in the fact that it's it's not there's not too much information that you're overloaded by it but it keeps it focused on the key points of the story will focus on you know if there's a there's a big moment for the game that's kind of where we hone in on so we, we try to not get too nitty-gritty with them by design because we want them to appeal to a more mainstream audience you know, hopefully in the future, ideally we get them on like Hulu or Netflix or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, making it uh, engrossing rather than obsessively. Impressive. Yeah, well, we, we, when we try to do the documentaries, we, we didn't really do this at the start, but now now we do. Um, after the Shirley Curry documentaries, we try to we try to make us we try to tell a story that anybody could be interested in. So like when we're making the docs, I'm like, hmm. would, I, would my mom watch this? <laughs> so. Yeah, I, and I certainly think that documentaries writ large, not just game industry serve that purpose because it, it's very often a window into something you may never have a part of or you may ne have never been interested right. in but it, the human drama w is borne out regardless of yeah, the subject and that's matter. that's our key focus with them is really that the human story behind it that's why we, we spent some time at the beginning figuring out like, where they came from what their early history with gaming was like because that's how people connect with it like oh yeah i played that stuff that's cool like, you know it humanizes them a lot more than just somebody working behind the screen on a game and I think it works both ways as well, because when we explore their gaming history, then gamers, it always feels weird to say gamers. Do you agree? It started to, yeah, I think that's a whole other tangent, but uh, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of how people have, have turned it into a derogatory term, kind of like how nerd was. True, so, true. Yeah, gamers. I mean, but focusing on the games that they were interested in, the ones that you can really see the inspiration in Darkest Dungeon's design and gameplay that allows people to understand, okay, that's how games are designed if they don't know much about video games. But if you do, then that's a point of reference of, okay, well, maybe I played that or my dad played that in the case of some of the older right. games. Yeah, it can create layers of investment depending on what le level of investment you yep. entered with. Yeah, you know, it's cool seeing all the comments on those, but how they, they inspire people uh, in here, you know. Uh, they have these, a lot of people like have pre- conceived like notions of what like, you know someone like Tyler Sigmund might look like or the development team might look like having worked on a game with the style 
uh, you know, I guess darkness of darkest dungeon. You know, when they say they're just normal people that play Mario Kart, they're, they're like, oh, that's, that's neat. <laughs> yeah, and I assume you kind of knew this based on the fact that it was focused on uh, the trailer and sort of caps off the whole documentary, but the idea that uh, of ideas, you know, that, oh goodness, it was Chris, yep. right, Barasa? Yes, the idea of ideas itself and how perfect they are in your mind and the dirty mess of making them real for any creative person, regardless of video games or otherwise, is so true and terrifying. It's like one of those dirty little secrets that we yep. keep if you're in a creative field. Yep. Yeah, a lot of it, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hell of a quote from him. Mm-hmm. Should be on a t-shirt, honestly, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, or on like every wall, yeah, everywhere. Anytime you walk into a studio, it should be your idea. On my your idea is perfect. Execute it. Do you uh, feel that kind of pressure entering a documentary space, or does the by the nature of it being a documentary, it unfolding leave that sort of until the editing um, process? I probably much like being an editor in chief. I probably take a very unorthodox approach to doing the documentaries. Uh, that would probably make most filmmakers just squeeze, you know, squeam around. <laughs> When we when we do the documentaries, I usually just I mean we go in prepared obviously, but I, I usually just have a uh, you know a prepared list of notes of like here's topics I want to focus on, and then uh, we just kind of embed ourselves in the studio a little bit, you know, break the ice, get comfortable with each other, and then just really have conversations. There used to be that element of like oh man, I hope people like this and all that, and I guess that sounds arrogant, but you know I, I think we, I, we've done enough documentaries now that I know what I'm doing and I know what people are looking for with them for the most part uh, this, you know the, the scarier part is like oh, are these are the developers going to be able to tell their story in a, in a fun and engaging way you know if you don't have a good interview sure. subject yeah. then, you know, you're not going to get a good documentary out of it no and, and I certainly feel that in terms of yeah you want this to be enjoyable for, for other people but the idea of entering into that space just to get to know people and then tell the story of these people who you've become sort of colleagues with, if not friends. And yeah. Again, that's very much what I do here. Of like, I don't reach out to anyone for this that I don't want to have a conversation with. Right. Is uh, an episode, my most recent episode before this one was recorded, not when this one will have come out, uh, was recording at the Nashville chapter of the Global Game Jam. And I just sort of hung out there and talked to folks here in Nashville that make games. I didn't do any game making. Uh, and people over the course of the weekend learned, oh, this guy's making a podcast. And somebody said, hey, I can get you in touch with some some big people if if you drop some money and get into the nice country club. <laughs> and I went, well, uh, thanks, I guess. That's really not what I'm trying to do here, though, but thanks. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's been the cool part about what we do is, you know, like gaming memory started off with nothing like i said you know no no clip <laughs> had the had the established audience and all that you know got 20 grand out of the gate to do it so yeah. us has been you know the documentaries people you know the games industry kind of knew who i was just having done hundreds and hundreds of interviews with indie developers and stuff like that but, you know even even now i'm not like super connected with the triple a space but we try to let, make, let the quality of our work speak for itself and that's kind of how like we've landed the last few documentaries like we did the do- documentary with uh, divinity they referred us to Insurgency, and then Insurgency referred us to Darkest Dungeon along with Divinity. You know, they're all like, "Oh yeah, we saw your doc. It looked good. Like, let's. Yeah, I think we're gonna take a shot with these guys and do it." So, is the AAA uh, sort of story and developers 
something you want in theory or do you like the kind of i guess mid-tier what the the last few games have been of like yeah they're well-known named games but they don't have the the full reach of you know the say the square right. docs yeah or no I'd, I'd absolutely docs. love to do uh triple a docs like rainbow six siege is on my my top list to do it's mm-hmm. more of a uh you know we we shoot the docs sometimes within three days i think the most we've ever spent is a week on one so trying to get in and tell the entire story of you know a, a massive triple a studio it's like holy shit how do we do this you know with, with only yeah, three right. days and, and then having the nicer thing about the indie developers is like they're a bit more open they're not as controlled by pr so like while pr mm-hmm. will maybe check with us on a few things most of them are like yeah now tell our story with a developer like you ubisoft or whatever like we might have pr over our shoulder the entire time Oh yeah, I mean, I, that's one of my favorite bits from any no clip is when he's interviewing the president of Square Enix, and the president just keeps looking over. Yeah, Can I right. say this? <laughs> yeah, I think um, you know that. You know, of course, AAA developers can give us the same amount of human stories as, as the smaller developers, but at least for just two of us shooting this with very limited budget, gotta kind of pick our battles there. What can we feasibly get done in just a few days' time? Do you think that's any? potentially easier or harder when right now the only option is remote um i would much rather be on location than do a remote documentary there's actually oh, sure. probably less logistics work to do it on location because that's our our next stock is going to be a complete remote it's just going to be a pain in the ass to put together no b-roll to uh, yeah probably not unless we get them to film some of it but then, hmm. then you got to worry about oh is all the shots the same amount of quality so we've talked a lot about your work stuff do you just want to talk about sure. games for a little bit <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you get tired of talking about games, considering that's a lot of your life now. <laughs> I, honestly, like I don't do a whole lot of talking about games outside of work. Just kind of relax from it when I'm not working. So, what, was there? Uh, if you if you'd like to talk about video games sure. for a little bit, was there a console or like a moment where you sort of entrenched yourself in gaming for the first time? Oh, uh, that would probably be all the way back on on the computer when I was very young, and I think. Some of the first games I really got into were, uh, uh, there was a dinosaur hunting game called Carnivores. I really, really got into that. Hmm. Yeah, I think most of my gaming time when I was younger probably would have, you know, I played all the PS1 games like Crash Bandicoot and all that stuff. But I didn't really get addicted in, in gaming until Halo came out. Which ah. is why I get so mad at Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But, uh, yeah, no, Halo, Halo was my first, like, real love, game love, and I, you know, I go over to my uh, my neighbor's house and tell my parents so I'm going to play Super Smash Brothers and I was really going to play Halo. <laughs> Halo 2 came out and that was that was where my addiction really hit. I'd get home from school and you know screw the homework and get on Halo and play that all night. <laughs> so it would have been frowned upon to go over to your friend's house to play Halo as opposed to the rated E10? Yeah, my, my parents were especially my mom, she's like I don't want you playing M-rated games until you're old enough kind of thing. <laughs> Gaming was a, a a huge part of my life as a kid that's just how we made a lot of friends and all that at the time i mean i don't i don't know how old you are but you know i was 95 so it's kind of when gaming really started taking off right around then i was I, born 94 you know, you know what it's all about yep now i started off as uh, more of a nintendo kid because my sister had a nintendo 64 which she monopolized greatly and then when i got to the age where i could have console i got a gamecube so I had a lot of good times with the strange third-party <laughs> titles that wound up on that console. But then eventually got a 360. I never had an original Xbox with the Duke. But got a 360 and then spent all of my time on Xbox Live, 
playing lots of Uno and Halo Reach. Yeah, never, I never got an original Xbox until actually the 360 came out either. So, hmm. uh, I didn't really expand my gaming horizon until the 360 came out. That's such a I, good console, though. Yeah, it was. Like, there, there's definitely a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in it, and if we can acknowledge that, then that's fine to talk about. But like the the early Xbox Live Arcade era, the the era of you know fighting with all the PlayStation fans who had their crappy free PlayStation Network where we got what we paid for. Right. <laughs> Playing Aegis Wing for the fiftieth time because it was free. Yep. I remember having a huge collection of 360 games and decided to sell it for a PS3 and got that with Metal Gear Solid 4, which I had never played a Metal Gear Solid game before, and then came with a free game called Pain. I played, huh. I played the hell out of that game. You ever heard of Pain? I haven't. It was a free game that came. Well, it, it yeah it came with the PS3. It was a game like a ragdoll game where you put a dude in a slingshot and throw him at shit to hit like create as much <laughs> damage as possible. So is it like three dimensional Angry Birds but violent? Yeah, pretty much. Like <laughs> it, it was, it was stupid. Like the the maps were just pretty much fucking hilarious. They had every you could interact with everything on the map. So and you get more points for the crazier things you do so like there was a part where you could uh shoot him high enough up to grab like this massive bowling ball and he would just roll off the thing and hit the ground with it and break like a train track and the trains would fly off and hit everybody below and you could shoot him straight up in the air and try to land him in like a smokestack like a really pinpoint smokestack goodness it was basically burnout's like crash mode but i was about to say it sounds so much like the satisfaction of Burnout Takedown. Uh, it's one of my favorite games ever. Oh, man. I keep thinking of... Uh, well, Burnout Paradise is coming to the Switch next month, so I jump back in on that, because, again, I, do you regret a lot of the games you sold to GameStop back in the day? No, I mean, with my job, I never find time to really go back and replay games anymore. Fair point. Uh, sometimes I just think about the hours spent crashing cars in Burnout. Just playing it in the family room as like a fourteen-year-old. My dad looking at me, going, "You're getting a license in two years, aren't you?" Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Are you mainly PC at the moment in terms of like when you choose to play what you want to play? Uh, yeah, it's a combination. Okay. Usually a game between the Xbox and PC, but you know, keep the PlayStation around for the exclusives. Yep, that, that is what the PS4 was for yep. for sure. Yeah, for me, like I camped out on the 360 for so long, and you know, a Wii was over there <laughs> to play Super Mario Galaxy or whatever. And then when uh, going through college, I had neither the time nor money to get an Xbox One, that's for sure. But then getting out of college, finally getting a job, getting some money, I looked at the landscape and went, you know, the Switch looks fun. Yeah. So I've gone in cycles for like Nintendo to Microsoft back to Nintendo again. So every time something looks really cool that's released for the PC, I just cross my fingers and hope for the Switch. Yeah, I, end up, I ended up getting all the consoles because uh, I can slightly justify it with my job. Or at least that's what sure. I tell myself to spend the money on it. So. If, if that's what you can tell the IRS. <laughs> yep. That is, the, that, is, that is a nice perk of mm-hmm. somebody that covers games. You can write it all up. So is FPS... Uh, you know, born out of Halo, still your kind of go-to genre? Yeah, I would say so. I, I like playing the competitive shooters, so Rainbow Six Siege is you know, mm. my game nowadays. How is uh, Siege in, in, like, current season? How many operators are there now? Oh, man, there's... I think they're up to almost 60 now. Goodness. Uh, yeah, I, I love that game. Uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of ruined all other FPS games for me. Now, I, when I play an FPS game, like, I want it to make me think more than just run around and shoot things. 
Mm. So, and some of my closest friends now were, were basically born out of that game. Nice. Yeah. Even going to each other's weddings and stuff like that now. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, that seems like a game more than any other where communication is paramount. Oh, yeah. You can't play. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't play without communicating. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting to see how people have, uh, game developers particularly, have been dealing with the barrier of, like, some people have no voice chat, some people have crappy voice chat. Like the ping system in uh, Apex, you know, that sort of... I haven't played it, but it seems like, from response, a very graceful solution to a lack of voice chat. Yep, it's pretty much standard in FPS games now already. Thanks, Respawn, we'll take that. Yep. Would you say it's difficult for people to get into Siege now with that amount of operators? No, not really. They have you know, hmm. uh, specific modes geared at newbies. They're also going to be combating uh, Smurf accounts, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically somebody that's high rank creating a new account so they can start over. Yeah. So they're they're gonna be, I think, banning people that do that. Hopefully, yeah. So that'll that'll hopefully usher in a whole a whole new way. But that that game's massive. It's not going anywhere. I'm excited hmm. to see them transition it to next gen too. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, something that comes up on the Escapist a lot is the the nature of quote live service because mm-hmm. that's what a lot of people have tried, and it seems like I guess average success across the board because most of those games are still running, but people don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, Would it, it seems like Siege might be the most successful to some degree. Uh, yeah, it's it's up there. I think I, I think guess uh, PR wise, it's the most successful probably. That was my thinking. Yeah, in terms of it's still doing well. It seems I assume it's doing well monetarily, considering. Yeah, <laughs> they're still making it. Well, yeah, that's a big esport. No one's gotten pissed at it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they have a they have a workable model, and they transitioned that over to For Honor too. And uh, I mm. think Ubisoft in general has probably the best games as a service monetization practices out of the, the major publishers. EA's EA. I mean even they're even their Madden twenty one announcement yesterday has already pissed everybody off, which I'm just <clears throat> counting down the days till they walk that back. So but, actually I didn't hear about that. What they um, it's not really utilizing the smart delivery program that Xbox is doing where if you buy the game on Xbox and then get a Series X it transitions free. No, they want you to basically purchase the game and then you have a limited time frame to upgrade for free. Typical EA. Oh, stuff. interesting. EA's EA is still pretty shitty about their games and service stuff. We'll see. I mean, we're probably gonna see uh, the revamped Anthem soon, so I would imagine they're gonna hopefully be better about it. But that announcement of Madden 21 yesterday doesn't spur much confidence in that. Yeah, I feel like particularly with EA, you're gonna have to wait for their money to drop a little bit for them to budge on almost anything. Yeah, I mean, well, they took a big enough hit on Anthem, so hopefully, you know, they're, that's they're smart enough that's to be true. like, hey, like, let's not fuck up this launch too. Let's make sure it's consumer friendly. You could just fill in the EAs being shitty about blank with almost anything. Pretty much. I mean, they they started the whole online pass thing back then to burn out. True. First microtransactions. So it's, it's Oblivion's horse armor. I didn't know that. Anything, uh, you're almost certainly going to talk about this on a video that I haven't seen yet, mm-hmm. but any major standouts from the, quote, gameplay event? The inside Xbox yesterday? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. Uh, I'm excited to see that Scorn is, is coming because I've been covering that game since I was back on OSP so, so far back now. And actually to see it's a next-gen game and actually found a publisher and everything's pretty neat. It's been in development that long. Yeah, oh man, I think it's been 2013 or 14 that was announced. Yeah, it's been a minute. Maybe maybe 2015. Hmm. Yeah, either way, yeah, it was 
six, five or six years in development for that one. It's, I think they even did a Kickstarter for it. Uh, oh dang! But uh, yeah, I'm interested in that, and then you know, obviously Assassin's Creed Valhalla is on my radar. They're saying all the right things so far. That's a a smaller game, more focused story. They got rid of the uh, the power leveling, so it's, or they got rid of the, uh, the arbitrary numbers for leveling, and they're going towards powers. I'm assuming it has to do with your abilities and stuff. So hmm. I'm very excited about that. I like Vikings. <laughs> Yeah, Assassin's Creed as a franchise, it's such an odd mix of everything staying the same, but also innovating. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't even say it innovates, they're just... That's true, tacking on features. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're changing it up to what the market's interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's a, ser- it's a series I, I really, really enjoy, and then sometimes I really, really hate it. <laughs> do, you, do you think of the first one very fondly at this point? I don't think I'd ever go back and replay it, but back then that was that was one of my favorite games. When that came out, that's when the first original Gears of War came out, Mass Effect came out, mm. uh, my my, my, my not so secret love of Eva Pinata came out. <laughs> yes. At <laughs> so, all four. How was there games. never? How was there never more Viva Pinata? I have no idea, and I'm I, like in the age of games as a service games. That is the perfect game to launch as a games as a service consistently introduce new pinatas and everything microsoft needs to hire me i'll make it happen <laughs> I, yeah how is it never like mobile or something i it don't seems know right they're they are sitting on a gold mine ip there i don't know what they're doing mm. but we do know the, we do the know, last laurel they're resting on yeah well we do know rare is working on multiple projects so if they're smart mm. that's one of them did they ever have a pinata that looked like banjo mm, i don't know i don't think so <laughs> oh goodness uh would you like to talk about the indie showcase you're putting together uh, yeah, I can talk about that a little bit. So uh, that was born out of, I assume, all of the things being canceled for the summer. Uh, yeah, um, it's also something I've wanted to do for a really long time and just never had the resources to do it. Uh, and now we now we finally do. So that's <laughs> I've I've planned events in the past, but this is on a completely other scale. So uh, we've I think we've had almost we actually surpassed 150 signups for it now. We're not showcasing nice. all those games, but. <laughs> that was way more attention than I was ever expecting, and then uh, it was kind of nice at the start because well, we got a head start on everybody, I think, because uh, Futures announced their own showcase. Now IGN has their own showcase. Jeff Jeff Keatley's doing one. Got a little bit of a little bit of a head start on that. I think we're gonna show off some really cool stuff. I, uh, the big differentiating factor for it is it's not gonna just be you know a montage of trailers. We want to actually like highlight dig into our gaming memory roots a little bit and highlight the developers behind the games a little bit. So one of the things we're, we're having them do is, uh, you know, every developers, almost everyone that signed up is submitting a small developer diary. Hmm. So we're going to do something with that. Some of it will be shown during the actual showcase, which will be like a fully edited video, not live or anything like that. And then doing that post-show, we're, we're going to be streaming all weekend. That's where we'll pretty much do, you know, the coverage you might expect from like something at D3 with live gameplay demos, hands-off stuff, developer interviews, and then uh, during that whole time as well, we're going to be running an extra life charity stream. Oh wow! We're a month out already, and I'm sweating my ass off getting that thing put together. I it's bet. Really, it sounds like a lot. Yeah, it's 99% me organizing it, and then we have somebody working on arts and graphics, and Omar's going to edit the video. So I think that I'm doing about the work of I think a team of 20. Probably, yeah. So do you have a set number of games to be in it? Uh, we're getting them all confirmed now, but I think it's going to be between 80 and 90. Wow, good stuff. Yep. 
it's <laughs> we were we were expecting twenty or thirty. So now I'm like, oh boy, am I gonna do this? And I had to I had to close the entries early actually because I I I can't uh, control myself in selecting too many games. <laughs> so th- was that the the reason it got so uh, got to be so many? Just like okay, there's too much good. I can't say no to all of them. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I I'm really picky about games and like I but I also you know without sounding too big headed I, I think I have a good eye for quality uh, when, we, when we do cover indie games and all that things that are going to be interesting and I think <laughs> pretty much every game we're showing is uh, you know a lot of, a lot of them have already been announced but uh, we're getting a lot of exclusive gameplay reveals and all that and I think a lot of them are just going to be games people have never heard of before because a lot of outlets probably have never given it coverage and that's always really exciting to see an indie game that gets you as excited as anything else. Yeah, yeah, I think the showcase with the list that we put together I think, literally has something for everybody in it. And there's, uh, you know, unannounced stuff in there too that I think people are going to be pretty excited about. Well, talking about uh, having an eye for quality for this sort of thing, do you think being in games media, games journalism for this length of time and watching all of those E3 showcases every year has taught you, okay, here's what I would like to see of this group so like and being someone who enjoys video games being a gamer and not necessarily a pr person do you think that adds to that yeah i mean i mean as a person that covers games and you know i think a lot of people when they see you know maybe it's a, too much of a generalization but like a lot of games media people on like social media i'm sure you've seen it too you seem to follow the stuff is like a lot of them are very cynical <laughs> about yeah. about games and about like these showcases and all that and like Oh, it's just PR marketing fluff and all that. Like, I'm somebody that's like, I don't really care. I just want to see cool new games, right? Like, <laughs> well, I was just gonna say, like, I know I'm being marketed to. I know I'm being sold the product, but it's like, you know, it's video games. It's exciting. Nobody's gonna take getting excited about a game away from me. Yeah, exactly. I, I'll tune into not this year, obviously. The, uh, I'll watch the E3 live stream every year because it is exciting. I'm never gonna play half these games, but these people are so good at marketing. If you can distance yourself from the brain of like, well, I know I'm not going to pay 60 bucks for that and just let yourself get hype for a minute, it's fun. Yeah. And I mean, I just, you know, I even, I guess in the same vein, like I don't play too many games, I guess now I like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty selective and that's kind of like why I've been doing today. We try the live stream series is, you know, mm-hmm. it's getting me to expand my horizons a little bit and try games I wouldn't normally try and see if I like it. But I mean, I, in general, I just, I love covering games. Like I love seeing how they're made. I love, you know, just seeing people's creations come to life, even if I might not play it. So that's, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to put on with the showcase. Like, yeah, there's, you know, 80 to 90 games in here, but I just like, we just want to show off people's creations. That's all I really care about. And in talking about knowing you're being marketed to, I'm married to a graphic designer. There's a lot of effort that goes into advertising and marketing that if it's effective, mm-hmm celebrate how good those people were at marketing it as long as it's not perhaps an ea where they are covering up something with good marketing as opposed to extolling good things yeah and well that's why we're adding the developer diary thing into it so it doesn't just feel like a you know a faceless marketing event like we want to showcase the people behind the games that people are going to be playing absolutely Uh, that's that's a big mission of mine especially with the documentaries too it's just like humanize the games industry like there's so much toxic behavior on, on social media and all that and then like when you go do when we go do the documentaries and i mean you can go back and look through the comments on all of our documentaries like there's so many people and they're just appreciative of the developers you know and saying how much they love their games and 
you know, there's not really any negative comments you're going to find in there. And that, that makes me super proud to see stuff like that because like, I'm not adding to the toxic nature of social media or online stuff. I'm only putting good stuff out there, good, positive, fun things. Yeah, and that plays such a part in so many uh, games, especially the last few years with early access, like in the dungeon, uh, Dark's Dungeon doc. Those responses to some of the early builds are such a huge part of the story, so it's integral to the documentary, but allowing that story to come out is even going to further humanize and say, okay, yeah, maybe we should back off a little bit. We try to cover things like that that happened to, to show how, you know, information like, or I guess social media attacks and all that, like, affect people like that, you know, developers, yeah. especially with, like, the even the corpse thing and people sending, you know, all those hateful messages to Darkest Dungeon and everything, too. Like, that stuff affects people. And, like, I'm a big advocate of not using social media for that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah post that message and forget about it but you don't know what somebody on the other side of the screen is feeling is there a twitter bot yet that just tells people hey you need therapy <laughs> it should be that, it should, it be, should a be a social I, media I bot that just pops up and tells you hey it's time to get off twitter for the day <laughs> you just, your phone just pops out a little breathalyzer <laughs> try again later or don't try again at all <laughs> you, you don't need it it is odd though because particularly in the moment we're living in Social media is more connective than, not more than it was before, but it is more of a option than it was before to be connected. Yeah, um, you know, in my line of work, it's kind of essential that you have it to stay connected. Mm -hmm. I live in the Midwest and not on the coast, but I've personally just, you know, aside from people that follow me, like I think everybody that follows me at least knows who I am and uh, wants to engage in good faith with me, but. I've had enough experiences at this point that I don't engage with people that I don't follow or don't know anymore. It's just gotten too toxic to the point where people automatically assume the worst. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, and, and that was part of taking over the escapists too. And, and yeah, I've been very, very, very careful about is, uh, you know, knowing the history of the escapists and everything and uh, trying to, like I said at the very start of this, trying to get away from that. But there's some people that the escapists either burn too bad or people read enough about the escapists to write it off forever and, still get hateful messages from people and all that even though nobody working on the escapist now had anything to do with what happened in the past but just that mm-hmm. that brand association has kind of marked me in a way i guess and that was something i knew knew going in might happen and you know oh well <laughs> yeah and then you'll have people who liked the old escapist decrying your attempts to make it kinder and more positive and more inclusive yeah i, I mean well, that's the thing. Like, it's a shame that like the word inclusive has been turned into such a, a controversial word when it really, you know, just means bringing everybody in. Like, gaming is for everybody. It always has been. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as publicly it hasn't been, but more women are playing games than we've ever seen when we go and do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's just a word that has according to some people, decided to take on a connotation, where if you alter it slightly, if you just say community, oh, that's great, this is a good thing, let's build community with other humans. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of that just comes down to social media, making it such a, a hot topic word. Well, it, it's, yeah, it's definitely a factor, but the, it's usually, uh, uh, the argument could be made, it, it is driven by larger factors and you know larger personalities regardless of whether social media is a thing but now because social media is a thing everyone can voice their opposition or favor yeah well and i 
my opinions on social media are probably a bit out there, but I mean, like, I, I think a lot of people take uh, social media way too seriously. I think yeah. every ninety percent of people in the real world are reasonable, decent people, and social mm-hmm. media just gives the the shittiest people a loud, a loud platform, I guess, which we keep amplifying by paying attention to it. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the day the day that I took over as editor in chief and, and released my editor's address, I mean, included the words inclusivity and that we weren't going to allow hate speech or any of that stuff on the site, which I think is just standard practice. Like, it doesn't seem. One yeah, it doesn't else. seem weird to me, but I'm sure you've heard of One Angry Gamer, and people were like literally sending me death threats from there. So. Sorry, we went we went down this yeah. rabbit hole. I'm used to it now. Hopefully, it was <laughs> I get it from like all pathetic. sides. Facebook thinks we're uh, well, social justice warriors. Twitter thinks we're alt right, and then YouTube is the most moderate out of the both. So I don't know how in that universe we ended up that way, but that's how it worked out. <laughs> YouTube, YouTube is the place I least expected to be on our side with all this stuff, but nope. Turns out they are, and Facebook and Twitter hate us. So. Interesting. I'll take it. That's where our biggest audience is. So. Well, unless there's anything else in particular, I should probably let you go at some point. Sounds good. I have not eaten today. So. Oh no, I'm <laughs> That's sorry. Okay, I went out to go get. I went out to go get food, and Kansas City has kind of ended the lockdown, and I guess everybody decided to go out and do the same thing today. So, back home, and I'm gonna hide. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> all right. Well. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you talking to me. me. Yeah, I had a good time. Hope you did yeah, as well. it's fun. It's cool. Uh, <laughs> I don't get to talk about my history too much because I'm not a big online personality. So Yeah, I mean, and that's part of why I reached out because obviously being a behind-the-scenes guy bolstering the other personalities, they get to, uh, the audience gets a sense of your Yahtzees and your Jack Packards, but, you know, we don't always uh, get the Nick Calandras, yeah. so I want yeah, to. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sometimes fun reading the comments. And they're like, oh, I'm only here for zero punctuation, and why can't Yossi go do this on his own? I was like, you have no idea how much stuff I do behind the scenes to make sure you get to watch this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I and many other people, I'm sure, greatly appreciate everything you do. Bro. Right, and thank you to the audience for listening. I appreciate it greatly. And if you're interested in any of the stuff we talked about, I'll be including links below to things like The Escapist and Gamumentary, as well as the new uh, Escapist Plus and YouTube subscriptions where you can support directly The Escapist and everything they do in order to have an ad-free experience on their website or see everything on their YouTube channel as it releases on the site. And as always, Makers Cast is brought to you by Music City Makers, a creative co-op here in Nashville, Tennessee, where we make what we love and we hope you'll love what we make. Uh, another link that you'll see down below is our link tree where you can find our store, all our social medias. And uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, maybe share it with, with someone who li- might like it. Do the subscribe thing. It's the internet. You found it. You know what to do. Thank you very much.